Happy Father's Day to you as we continue our series, Ordinary. We're going to be thinking about the life of Elijah. And as we think about the life of Elijah, one of the things that I want you to, to grasp is that the history of Israel changes and, and is being modified quite a bit here. So we talked about David a few weeks ago, and David was king of the nation of Israel, and he was the second king because the first king was Saul, right? So Saul was the first king of the nation of Israel and brought them together and coalesced them together as a nation under a king. And then David and then, of course, his son Solomon. And Solomon really kind of grew the kingdom to massive scale. And so this huge, the nation of Israel was known wide because of the amount of money, because of the exports and imports and and all the political. Of course, Solomon married many wives. And the reason that he was marrying many wives is because he was making political friends. And so that kingdom grew to a massive scale during that amount of time, and it was considered, in many ways, probably the richest kingdom for, for generations upon generations. They had made, he was that wealthy. And um, so soon after that, as you know, wealth and power, his sons came, and the kingdoms began to split until eventually, not too long after that, within a few generations, we actually have a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And so when you have a northern kingdom, the northern kingdom was, was Israel, and as a part of Israel, you um, had ten tribes, and Judah was the southern nation. And so you had the southern tribes, and there were two tribes as a part of that nation. So you had Israel, the northern kingdom, and Judah as a part of the southern kingdom. And so this morning, as we talk about the prophet Elijah, he dealt with the northern kingdom. And the northern kingdom as, was, was evil, and as the kings became kings, became powerful, and as their kingdoms grew, the evil grew. And so the... King of Ahab was the son of Omri, and Omri was obviously his dad before was a king, and he was the strongest of all the northern kingdom kings. And he grew it, and he built it, and he again kind of got to a place of Solomon, and people recognized his strength. And so, for literally for over several hundred years, whenever they talked about the northern kingdom Israel, they talked about it being the house of Omri. He was that powerful and that well respected. And so, his son Ahab was the next king. And so you can imagine if your kingdom is mentioned as the house of Omri, your dad, and you're now the king, you're kind of pushed on a lower pedestal and you're not thought highly of. And so as he comes to be king and takes reign over, he gets married and he marries a young lady by the name of Jezebel. Now Jezebel is considered the second most evil queen ever. Whenever they look at the historical annuals, there's two queens that are like the most evil ever, and Jezebel is considered the second most evil. I don't know how they measure evil, but that's how they measured it. In other words, her goal, her life goal, moving into the nation of Israel, marrying Ahab, was to destroy Yahweh worship. That was her stated goal as queen of the nation of Israel, is that my desire is to destroy Yahweh worship. Which is interesting that Ahab, who is someone who has the heritage of a Yahweh worshiper, would marry this person and bring her into the kingdom. But it tells us a little bit about his character and the backbone that he has, or the lack of a backbone that he has. And so Ahab and Jezebel come together as worshipers, and they're beginning to cast out Yahweh worship and to get the people of Israel to worship Baal and Asherah. And so this is the scene, kind of what's going on. And so here we got Elijah, the prophet, shows up in the midst of this. And if you know prophets, prophets are these nice, gentle guys. They walk into the room and they're like, hey, how are you doing? You want a cup of coffee? Let's sit down and talk about this. No. 
exactly the opposite. They walk into the room and they say, listen, God said, and boom, deal with it, okay? And so they're strong, type A driven people, but they're also humans. They're ordinary people called by God to deliver a message. And so here Elijah enters on the scene. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 17. We're going to be looking at several different passages, so we're, we'll look at them quickly and move on. Ahab and Jezebel, they're moving, they're grooving. Baal worship is going. He's already built a temple to Baal, and he's set up a, uh, an altar to Baal, and so there's full-on worship of Baal. Now, Baal is a fertility god, so they were worshiping him for their crops. They were worshiping him so for fertility, and so you can imagine what that looked like in that kingdom. And so here all this stuff is going on, and Elijah shows up in the midst of it, and he gives a message to King Ahab. He walks up to Ahab. Imagine in a scene. He walks up, and he says, Hey, Ahab, I'm Elijah. Nice to meet you. Three years, it's not going to rain. For three years, there will not be dew. There will not be freshness. There will be no rain. Turns and he walks off, and he walks to the brook of Kareth. And at the brook of Kareth, he spins. He's literally hanging out at the brook. And at the brook, ravens bring him meat and bread twice a day, in the morning and in the evening, which is kind of cool. I don't know about you, but you go to the brook. God tells you to go to the brook, and he shows up at the brook. So he's got water, but now he needs to figure out food. And a raven brings him twice a day, morning and evening, bread and meat. And so for, for quite a long time, this happens until the brook dries up. So I don't know how long it takes for a brook to dry up, but probably more than a week, right? For a little while. He's there and he's receiving the sustenance from God, this daily reminder, this daily miracle that God has called him to this specific task to be a prophet to the nation of Israel and especially to the King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. So this goes on for a little bit and finally the brook dries up. As we see in the passages in First Kings chapter 17, as soon as the brook dries up, God moves him on to Zarephath. And in Zarephath, God tells him directly, hey, you're going to go to Zarephath and you're going to meet a, a widow. And the widow's going to meet you and I want you to tell her, hey, feed me and give me something to drink. Okay, now listen, there's a famine going on now, right? And so now he's going to show up to this place. No one has seen him. They don't know who this guy is. And he's going to just present himself and say, feed me. Sounds like that's going to be a great plan, okay? So he does that. He's obedient. Ordinary guy being obedient. He's already experienced the raven bringing him food twice a day, morning and evening. He says, hey, if God can bring a raven and bring me food, surely a widow can feed me. So he goes to Zarephath, and at the city gate, a widow shows up. And you always wonder, how does he know that she's a widow? Does she have a W on her forehead or on her clothes or whatever? Widows would dress in a certain way. They would usually, if they'd lost their husband, they would have some black or something like that. So he would assume, here's this widow. She's gathering sticks for a meal. And um, Elijah said to her, hey, widow, nice name, right? Hey, young lady, please bring me something to drink. She said, okay, I can handle that. There's, so I guess somewhere, somehow, she's got some water. And he says, oh, yes, by the way, please bring me some bread to eat. She stops in that moment and says, hey, uh, that's, that's a great question. I, I can bring you something to drink, but you're asking, I'm literally, I'm gathering six here I'm going to go home and I'm going to cook the final meal for myself and my son. This is the final meal. I'm going to eat this and then we're just going to, we're planning on dying. This is our last final supper together. And she says to him and he's like, well, here's what God told me. Go back, make the first bread for me. Take that little bit of flour that you got, that little bit of oil, 
Make some bread. Make the first bread for me, and then make bread for yourself. And if you will do this every single day until the Lord tells us not to, then you and I will both be fed until the time is, is up. It's like, okay, that's, that's great faith. I don't know many moms that would go back to their house, especially widows, and say, hey, this random guy asked me for bread, and he said, hey, if I make him bread first, that it's going to work out for everybody for, for an infinite amount of time. Most moms would say, okay, good luck, and then go back and cook their own meal and not worry about this guy. But she did it. And so literally for months, actually probably several months, every single day she had enough flour and she had enough oil for bread for Elijah, for herself, and for her son for many months. So began this, this friendship. Again, another miracle. Ravens bringing meat and bread every single day as you, the brook dries up. And then here this widow every single day, just enough flour, just enough oil for that day and she prepares and it has enough to sustain them again the miracle of god continues to sustain elijah and those around him and then finally as a part of the story with the widow she gets to a place and she comes and she's frantic she comes to elijah and says why would you do this to me why would you bring this upon my house and he's like what what happened my son is dead my son is in. So you can imagine the franticness of this and, and um, what she's feeling and what she's thinking is that here is, I thought this was a man of God, but now maybe this is a curse of God. This is kind of their mindset. And she's like, what are you going to do about this? He picks him up, takes him, sets him in, on the bed and prays over him and prays over him and prays over him. It says it prayed over him three times with intense, great intensity. And on the third time, the young man sat up and came back to life. Only twice do we know if that happened. And one, Elijah did it, then also Jesus brought someone back to life. So the power of prayer, but the power of the life of Elijah. And it says in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 24, this is kind of one of those funny little phrases, verses, passages that gets put in that I think is, is interesting. 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 24, the woman says this, And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God. Isn't that interesting? She'd been a miracle every single day of just enough flour and just enough oil to sustain the three of them. But it took her son being raised, literally raised from the dead for a confirmation. Now, that I, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is true. The word of the Lord in your mouth is true. So after a little bit longer, about three years, Elijah returns and he returns to Ahab and he says, Ahab, I want you to gather up all the prophets of Baal and all the prophets of Asherah, about 850 men. Gather them together and I want you to have them meet me at the top of Mount Carmel. Now not Carmel, like the candy, but Carmel, C-A-R-M-E-L. Gather them up and let's do a little thing together. What I want to do is I want to show that Yahweh is the true God and the God of Baal and the God of Asherah is a false God. And, of course, Ahab being who he is, he says, let's go do it. And he gathers them up. He passes out the word. And so people meet around the, the Mount of Mount Carmel. And as they're meeting there, Elijah gathers the people and he says, hey, listen, here's the bet. Here's what I want you guys to see is we're going to bring two bulls 
that are ready for sacrifice, put those two bulls out. And you prophets of Baal and Asher, I want you to prepare your altar, and I'm going to prepare my altar. At your altar, you'll do sacrifice. You do what you do to get God to, to, to answer and to respond, and I'm going to do what I do to get God to respond and answer. So the prophets of Baal and Asherah, they began to prepare their altar. They you know, prepared the bull, they set it up and put the wood there, and then they began to pray. They began to call out, began in the morning, saying, Oh, Baal, won't you please burn up this sacrifice? So that's one of the things that Elijah kind of put a little deal on it. He said, Listen, hey, I want you to set up the whole sacrifice, set up the whole thing, but I want you to call on your God to sacrifice it, to be the one who consumes it with fire. So they're like, okay. So they're in there in the morning and they're praying, Oh, Baal, please offer up the sacrifice we've provided here. Would you consume it? Starting in the morning. And you imagine this is a church service and it's the church service getting going and there's no response. So about noontime, you guys thinking, okay, hey, the Methodists are going to beat us to church or to the to Lubies are going to beat us to back porch. They're going to beat us to wherever we're going to go eat, the country club, whatever it is. And so you're starting to think about this. And so Elijah begins to to nag them just a little bit and get on them. And he says, hey, listen, it's been, you've been here since 8 o'clock. It's almost noon, and your God still hasn't responded. And he says, what's he doing? Is he thinking? Is he off fishing? What's he doing? What's your God doing that you, when you call on him, he cannot respond? And so then it gets real serious for the prophets of Bill. They begin to dance. So we know they're not Baptists, right? So they begin to dance and begin to yell and call out, and they begin to get to that part where they are literally, they begin to start cutting themselves this is again part of of um cult worship and Baal worship and some of these other cults they would literally begin to cut themselves to draw attention and call out and so the amount of pain and the amount of sacrifice and the the self-hurt that they provide for themselves calling out saying Baal please please respond to us and it gets to the point of the evening about three o'clock four o'clock the time of the afternoon and evening sacrifice and Elijah looks at him and says I guess Baal's not going to respond. So he calls his, some of the people that were around him. He said, hey, listen, help me finish this up. And they set up his sacrifice. They set up the, prepare the bull. They prepare the stones. And he takes 12 stones that represent the nation of Israel. See, for even though the nation of Israel is split up, that the kingdom has split up in the northern and southern, God's desire is to unify the people. And so the 12 stones represent the 12 tribes, and they put the wood and they put the bull, and they get it there. And he says, hey, listen, I want to do something even better than that. Why don't you get some water and some jugs of water and just pour it over that? So I want there to be no mistake that when God consumes this, this is of God. And so they take the water and they pour it over. And he goes, hey, let's go do that again. And they pour some more water. And he says, hey, go do it again. And then they do it a third time. So much water has drenched the sacrifice. It's drenched everything around the altar. Even the trench that he'd built around it was covered with water. And water, water is just literally pouring out everywhere. And then Elijah looks at his people and he prays this. Elijah the prophet came near and he said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Now let's stop just for a second. Now remember, this is the worship of Baal and Baal is the fertility God and he's the one that sustains, right? Now what's the heritage already of Elijah. See, the 
prophets of Baal have been teaching their people that their God is the one that sustains and provides. But here, for three years, there's been no provision of rain. You have to have rain to have food. And so they're starving. They are at their limits, ends of what it means to be true famine. There is nothing there in this entire time. The God of Israel has been sustaining Elijah miraculously through ravens and through this widow day after day after day. And so he's about to call out and he's saying, listen, I want you to understand this God of Baal that you've been calling out to, he doesn't respond to you and provide your provision. He doesn't sustain you. Only Yahweh sustains you. And so this is in the back of those people's head because they're understanding that their God, not only at this moment hasn't been responding, but for three years hasn't responded. And so they got questions and doubts about the the validity and the power of their God. And so in this moment, here's Elijah, verse 37. Answer me, O Lord, answer me. And he says this because he knows that he will because he's seen it in the past three years. That this people may know, and this is again, not a knowledge of just intellectual knowledge, but a knowledge of experience. And see, God understands this, that we, we can study this all day long, but until we experience and encounter the living God, it's just this head knowledge. And when we can move it from head knowledge to heart knowledge, it begins to motivate us. That's how whenever God says to us, to the church, they shall know you by the way that you love. Right? Because they experience, whenever we experience and understand the grace and love of God, it motivates us and moves us to love in a different way. We see people in a different way. We weep over our cities because we understand what it means to love God. And so here in this moment, answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that they may experience you like I've experienced you. They've been wanting a God to provide and have wanted their God to sustain, and you have been providing and sustaining me that you may know, that they may know, O Lord, our God, that you have turned their hearts back, so that they may have their hearts turned back. And then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, the wood, the stones, the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. An all-consuming fire. There was no doubt that this is the God that will sustain them, will provide for them, that will care for them. An all-consuming fire was called down. He didn't have to cut himself. He didn't have to dance. He didn't have to shout. He just said, God, please answer me so that these people will know you by this experience. And an all-consuming fire fell. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces. And they said that the Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. What's cool is when we have an encounter where we know we've experienced a living God, there is no other expression worthy than to fall on our face before Him. Because in that moment, those people were in church. You know what I mean? I mean, you've had those moments where you're like, Man, the Spirit of God has broken out, and I can't explain it, I don't understand it, but I know that I know that I know that God is moving, and you can't do anything but fall on your face, and those people have experienced it, because they experienced the God that will provide and sustain and to meet their needs. All the while, they've been calling to a false God, and He was here. One of the things that, that Elijah had said to him even before this prayer, he just said, listen, what I want you to get from this experience, what I want you to get from this moment 
in verse 21 is this. Choose in this moment who's God. If it's God, if it's Yahweh, then follow Him. Quit limping along, quit wavering, and follow Him. If it's Baal, then follow after Him. Listen, this is the choice for us, even today. You know, he came along. He says, you're limping in two different directions. You've you got to decide. You've got to choose. You're, you're sitting on the fence. And so for us, even today, is listen, we have choices to make. If God is truly God, if you've experienced Him and you know Him, then get after it. Get after it. Because listen, God will sustain you. God will provide you. God will miraculously do things in your life that are unexplainable. He will bring ravens to the brook day in and day out. He will provide a widow that will provide food for you and sustain you and provide. He will give you what you need. An ordinary person being obedient when you say, I know that I know that I know God is God and I'm going to go all out. Even in LaGrange even in Fayette County, even at your high school, even at your junior high, even at your work, when you are all out. Because listen, there's a lot of other things that we worship. Some of us are going to go home and we're going to turn it on when we get home. We worship. There's lots of options. Some of I could pull out some green stuff in my wallet pass it out and we worship it. Listen, all those things are good things. They're not necessarily bad things and evil things, but what is it that we're giving our life and our attention to that sustains and provides for us? So here then, after this all-consuming fire, Elijah looks at King Ahab, and King Ahab hasn't really, you can imagine the king, he's been the one that's only been sustained, and he looks at him and he says, hey, go eat for a little bit. I'm going to go over here to the side and I'm going to pray for a few minutes. And Elijah goes off to the side and he prays and he prays and he prays. It says he prays seven times. God, you, you said that you were going to provide rain after three years and here we are and I'm asking. And he continues to ask and he's looking out over the mountain. He's looking out over the sea and he's looking and he's waiting and he's waiting. The seventh time he looks out and he sees a little speck of a dark cloud coming. And he knows that God's providing. And he turns around to Ahab and he says, Hey, bro, you might want to get in that chair and get going because the rain's coming. And if you don't go now, you're not going to get home. You're going to get stuck. And Ahab jumps on the chariot. And it says Elijah got a, got a gifting of Usain Bolt. And he passed him up. Can you imagine how fast that was that he had to pass the chariot? That guy's moving. Like, for me, it would have been like, Hey, there's a refrigerator over there. I'm like, Cool, I got 50 yards. I got it. Other than that, I'm like, <gasps> he took off running. Then look, chapter 19, verses 1 through 3, you see the ordinary guy show up. I mean, he just called down all-consuming fire. And this is consumed. He just had experienced the ravens. He'd experienced the widow bringing food. He'd just experienced seeing the cloud and this huge rainstorm come after three years. And then look at 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 1 through 3. This is kind of, to me, this is like going to camp or going to mission trip and experiencing high, and then all of a sudden the real world helps. He's in the presence of Ahab and Jezebel. He's, he's hearing about this. He's probably in the courtyard of the king. And Ahab, being the great guy that he is, he goes and he tells Jezebel, because Jezebel wasn't there. Hey, Jezebel, look what Elijah's done. 
how he killed all the prophets, your prophets, the prophets that had sat at our table, all those 850 that we'd been feeding and taking care of, that we'd been investing in to change and invest in for our culture and our, and our kingdom. All those prophets were killed with a the sword. Then Jezebel. I imagine uh, Cruella DeVille. You know what I'm talking about? Imagine her getting up from the table and just those red eyes and that crazy hairdo and, and all that. And here's what she says. So may the gods do to me and more also. If I do not make your life as a life of one of them, those prophets, by this time tomorrow. In other words, I'm going to take you out. Now what do you think, Elijah? He's experienced all this stuff. He's going to go, bring it on, girlfriend. I just called down fire. I just got fed by ravens. I just prayed and there's, what are you going to do to me? His humanity hit him. His humanity hit him. He began to doubt himself in those moments. And here's what he says. Here's what happened. Then he was afraid. What's he got to be afraid of? She must have been one evil, scary-looking woman to go, I'm out. And he arose and he ran. He ran for 40 days and 40 nights. 40 days and 40 nights. That is someone who is convinced that she is after him. This is severe witness protection. I am gone. He is in the wilderness 40 days and 40 nights. And it says that God shows up and asks him, Elijah, why are you here? This isn't where you belong. He says, but God, I'm alone. That's his response. Well, yeah, you're alone. You went 40 days and 40 nights into the wilderness. Nobody else is there, you fool. He's like, no, God, I am alone. In that moment on Mount Carmel, at the greatest spiritual moment of my life, I was felt alone. And God had to remind him, no, you're not. In those moments where you feel like God has called you out and you're doing something and God is called you in this place, and you may sense that you're alone, God reminds him there are 7,000 plus people in this nation that have not bowed down to the God of Baal, to the altar of Baal, or to Asherah. There are 7,000 friends. And listen, this is what I think is important for us. It's at those moments where we encounter God at this great, amazing place. It may be on a Sunday morning here. It may be in your personal time. It may be at a a camp or a retreat or a mission trip. And then you come back home and you're at home or you're at work or you're at school. And you feel alone in those moments because you're not doing life in biblical community. Elijah was doing life alone in those moments. And so when stuff hit, 
He didn't run to his group. There wasn't another group of prophets. There wasn't another group of people that he could go to and say, hey, listen, help me carry through this. I I am afraid. It's a natural thing. I am afraid. I'm, I'm walking through cancer. I'm walking through divorce. I'm walking through my kids. I do not know what my teenagers are doing. I did not teach them this. And it's in those moments that you think you're doing life alone. And you're like, God, I'm calling out. And God's saying, listen, there's, there's more than enough people for you to do life with. Begin to get into community and to do life with them. Because listen, all of us are ordinary, regular people, and God is going to call each of us to something specific. And it may not be calling down all-consuming fire on a mountain, but it's just as important because it can change someone's life. It will change someone's perspective of what it means and how they see God and where they find sustenance, where they find what they think is value. But every time that they take a bite of that apple, it doesn't fulfill them. And so they're looking at us saying, what do you got? You say that you worship this Yahweh God. Is that the God that's going to provide sustenance and what I need? And listen, alone, we're going to fail. We're going to mess up. We're not going to be able to do it. But in community, we can run and say, man, I, don't, I can't do this alone. I'm afraid. And run to that community and say, let's hold each other up. Let's support each other. Let's do it together. That's my challenge for us. Because we're really, really good at wearing masks and dressing up for church. And even in here, walking around saying, how are you doing? I'm fine. When on the inside, you're crying out saying, I am alone. And here's what I can tell you. I've done this for long enough to know Almost every single person has a similar story in some way. We've just got to find it. Each of us in some way have encounters with God and struggles that we need each other to walk each other with and through. And that that's what the world is looking at for us is that church people would begin to understand and admit that we are flawed people who know Jesus and we need each other in community to be honest and real and true and to say, listen, in this moment I feel alone. But that you're saying that to your group of people, your friends, and they could say, hey, listen, here's my, here's my story. Here's my walk. We're going to be with you. We've got your back and to walk with you. Guess what? The next part, what's God tell Elijah to do? Hey, Go find this guy, go find this guy, and go find this guy and do life with them. Community. Community, community, community. Some of you have experienced some great heartache and some great pain and some great victories. Your story is needed. Get in community with some people and share your life with them. Let's pray together. Father God, if we've been doing church long enough, we've had camp experiences, we've had mission trip experiences, retreat experiences, anything like this, where we've just 
We've experienced a spiritual high. We're thinking, man, it cannot get any better than this. And then life hits. And we hadn't done the preparation work before. We hadn't built community before. So we come back off that high and we come home. And we don't have that community. We don't have those true, authentic, biblical friendships that can love us and care for us, but also hold us accountable and create a sense of reverence and respect and fear that we need. So, Father, I pray. We've got camps coming up. We've got mission trips coming up. We just came off of VBS, and you've impacted so many lives and so many families through that. And so, Father, I pray that we would just find community. We would be okay with not being okay. That we would remove our church masks. We would remove our religious stuff. And just say, listen, I need a place. I need at least one place where I can just be me with some people. And just let it all be there. Because we are not alone. Number one, you're with us. And number two, there's others that are wanting to know us and to do life with us. May we seek that out in these coming weeks and these coming months. as we pursue you and pursue growing with you. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.